This morning's text can be found in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 30. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectations and hope, that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ shall even now as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed for both directions, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is very much better Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. We begin a new series of messages today on the theme of courage, boldness, God-centered risk-taking, venturesomeness. And I want to begin the series with the five reasons for why we're going to focus on this. Number one, some of us have felt in recent months that some of the earlier themes of the ministry since I've been here have been neglected. For example, much of what we are today as a church is based on the theme of radical, God-centered, wartime, risk-taking lifestyle. What I mean by that is the kind of life that is 
echoed in sentences like these from the Bible. He who loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will find it. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Be faithful unto death and you will be given the crown of life. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Love your neighbor in the same way that you love and provide for all your needs with great energy. Sell your possessions and give alms. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Whatever you want people to do to you, make that the measuring rod of the way you treat them. Morning, noon, and night, family members and not. Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That's where I get the word radical. And you will hear more and more illustrations from the Bible that no other word will work besides radical. And so we've felt that uh, if that was a theme earlier on in the ministry, if that created part of who we are, there are hundreds of people who have come to this church since those early days. And time is right. For another focus. Number two, there's a growing sense in some of us that we need to stir each other up to more adventuresome, risk-taking efforts in evangelism. We need to do something to break out of deeply ingrained habits of timidity and silence and fear. We need to do something to set ourselves free from long-established and inbred anxieties about offending people and about ruffling feathers and about being slandered. I know from personal conversations that there are many in this church who for one reason or another in your background find it almost impossible to do anything that might bring down a negative word upon you. And therefore, your whole life is calculated to avoid offending people, which makes you unbelievably weak. And that can be broken. It can be broken by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you can become free people who don't have to fret anymore about whether a word spoken in love and truth is misinterpreted and brought back down on you with reproach. You can sleep well at the end of the day. And this ties in with things that we're planning for the summer that are going to be more stretching 
for us than anything we've done before as we minister in this city. Number three, there is a growing sense among some of us that the winds are blowing ill in America today for Christian comforts. And this isn't necessarily a bad thing for the power and for the purity of the church. It might turn out to be a very good thing, but we need to be ready for the reproach, for the danger, for the disagreement, for whatever may come. First Peter 4.12 says, Do not think it strange when the fiery ordeal comes upon you as though something unusual were happening. What's unusual is that it hasn't happened much in this nation for so long. That's unusual. To have a 300-year window in which the cultural norm has almost been set by the kingdom. Much corruption to be sure, but little deadly persecution. Number four, there is a rising sense that taking a loving biblical stand on some of the front burner issues of our time like abortion or homosexual behavior, will be increasingly risky business and may call down not only verbal but physical abuse. Windows broken out on the church, spray paint on the outside, obscene phone calls in the middle of the night, threats to your children. Those are simply documents of Say a little church in San Francisco that some of you know about and I know about, and many others. And finally, number five, I've been teaching the book of Philippians on Wednesday nights now for several months with about 150 of you or so who come, and uh, it has really gripped Because the text that Neil just read, if you were listening, has courage and boldness and fearlessness running through it like a theme. And what I have seen in this text that I'll come back to in a minute is that Christ-exalting courage, boldness, fearlessness, risk-taking is not something on the edges and the periphery of Christian life. It's at the center It's not icing on the cake for the super saints that you read about in biographies. It's the meat and potatoes of normal Christianity. That's what I've been seeing. Now, I want to point you to the text and show you that. But before I do, I want to put a parenthesis in here. And uh, Tom Steller is the one to thank for this parenthesis. Because earlier this week, we were talking over this series this series has been in the making now for months, long before there, there was a David Koresh or Branch Davidians. And Tom said, I wonder if when you blow the trumpet for risk-taking, bold, courageous, ready-to-lay-your-life-down, God-centered courage, you might need to orient this in what a lot of people have been thinking about this week, namely people 
who were so committed to what they believed in that they were willing to go up in flames for it. So I thought, hmm, I probably should. So I, I am. And my response runs like this. Um, I think the greatest danger facing the Christian community in America today is the fear of being labeled fanatical. And that what the devil did this week in Waco was to strike a blow against courage among Christians. One of the greatest fears in America today, outside the church and inside the church, is the fear of being classed with fringe groups. Oh, deliver me from being called racist, sexist, homophobic, right-wing, fundamentalist, extremist, fanatic. Now, I hate those words. Some I hate more than others, but I don't like any of them. I don't want to be called any of those. I would like to sort of say things and do things that avoid those labels. I don't want them. Now, my not wanting them is a very dangerous thing. It's dangerous. Because the great danger is that I will now, instead of saying that the real fear is not speaking the truth in love. The real fear is so calculating everything I do and everything I say so as to avoid any label that is negative, I can't say anything anymore that has substance and truth and point to it. And therefore, the church is shut down by fear of being labeled a bunch of branched Davidians. The great danger for Christians in response to this tragedy is not that we will be swept away by another messianic pretender and kill ourselves because of a false Christ. That is not your danger. I am not up here and say, oh, be careful, be careful. I don't think that's your problem. This church is highly educated. It's highly independent. It's highly opinionated. It's not, you're not the kind of people that are going to just jump on anybody's bandwagon. The danger in this church, and I believe it is the main danger in the evangelical movement, I think in Christianity in America today, the danger is being so afraid of saying or doing anything that we might be called apocalyptic fanatics. Or we might be called, you pick your ugly label. And, whoa, we just can't do that. That's the main danger, to silence the church, to make us utterly impotent for fear of being labeled with a politically incorrect label. Now, it's not a new problem. This issue is not new. You can walk right back through history, and this is what's been getting in my brain in a more clear way than in a long time. You know, I have the notion... Sometimes that suffering for Jesus would be a noble and heroic thing to do. I think that's normal when you read the Bible and you read biographies to say, well, to, to go down nobly, 
would be a great way to go down. You gotta go down, let's go down for Jesus. It'll never happen. It will never feel noble. It will be ugly. It will be full of lies and deceit and derision and mockery. People will not be applauding. They will not be praising. They will be sneering. It will never be heroic. It will never be beautiful. Now, let me give you an illustration from New Testament history. The apostles are in Jerusalem. They've been preaching boldly. They get arrested. They're told at the risk of their lives, don't you preach in the name of Jesus anymore in this city by the officials who have the right to stone them. And they go out and they preach in public, not even underground. They preach and they arrest them again and say, we told you not to do that. And Peter, Peter, wild man, risk-taking, courageous, God-centered, bold, venturesome Peter says, very simply, I don't know what tone of voice, we'll keep it down, we must obey God rather than men. Oh, they, they were just gnashing their teeth. They were so angry. And Gamaliel, cool-headed Gamaliel on the, on the council said, just a minute before you kill him, put him out, I want to say something. They put him out of the room. And now I'm going to read you what Gamaliel said. Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis, read Jim Jones, rose up claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined with him and was slain. And he was slain. And those who were uh, with him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after this man, Judas of Galilee, read David Koresh, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him, and he too perished. And all those who followed him were scattered. And so, in the present case, with this, I'm with this Jesus, in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men, let them alone, for if this plan or action be of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you won't be able to overthrow them, or else you may be found fighting against God. And they took his advice. And after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus. This Jesus, Judas, Judas, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council. Now get this radical, crazy response. They went on their way rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Now what would you call that? What, what do you call that behavior? Give me words. Write them on a piece of paper for me. If you get tired of hearing the word radical, give me another word. Radical, risk-taking, God-centered, courageous. They rejoiced that they were shamed. When was the last time you sang a song that you were shamed? Being shamed is the number one fear in the Christian community. They rejoiced that they were shamed for Jesus. But now here's the, here's the real clincher that brings it right up to date. You know what the heart and core of the shame was, I think? 
they called Jesus Thutis. They're just another bunch of Thutis followers. They're just another bunch of Judas of Galilee followers. They're just like Jim Jones. They're just like David Koresh. These evangelical Christians are all alike. They're a bunch of fanatics. They don't think. They follow every charismatic figure that comes along. They're all one big pot, and they all need to be re-educated. Now, that stings a lot more than the whip. And you, many of you, would prefer a whip to that criticism. You would. The whip can feel heroic. The whip can feel glorious. The whip can feel like I suffered for Jesus. But when a hundred people with no dissenters cry out homophobic, sexist, extremist, fanatic, obscurantist, fascist, everything in you says, this isn't right. I'm not. And at that point, the ways divide. You can just go home and, and watch TV, be safe, or you can take it and even rejoice that you've spoken the truth in love, whatever they make of it. End of parenthesis. Back to, uh, I said in the first service, probably the only thing people remember is the princess, but that's okay. I'll try to make the main point of the message now so that maybe it'll stick too. I said the fifth reason for this series is taken from today's text. I've been in Philippians for all these months, and, and what I'm seeing is that courage and boldness and fearlessness and risk-taking for the kingdom is not on the periphery, but at the center of Christian living. I want to read two verses now. If you still have your Bible open, you can look at them with me. Philippians 1, 27 and 28. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now stop right there and realize that what Paul is doing in this kind of summary paragraph in this chapter, what he's doing here is summing up how to live worthy of the gospel. Christianity means living worthy of the gospel. Now watch, as I keep reading, the two things, watch for two things that are given to describe what it means to live worthy of the gospel. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together. So that's what I hear is the first key to living worthy of the gospel. One spirit, one mind, together. Unity. When Christians live in one spirit, in one mind, and together strive for the faith of the gospel and stand firm, then the gospel is shown to be worthy. Here comes the second one, verse 28. In no way... Alarmed or frightened by your opponents. So there they are. Uh, Peter O'Brien wrote a 600-page commentary on these four chapters. <laughs> Can you believe that? What scholars won't do. But I, I wrote 300 pages on 23 verses one time. It's, cur- it's just amazing what, what we can do when we pile footnote upon footnote. Um, 
And he said in verses 27 to 30, he gave the title. He wrote about 16 pages on these three or four verses. And, and he gave it the title, Unity and Courage in the Face of Opposition. When I read that this week, I said, that's exactly right, O'Brien. That's exactly right. Those two things. Two. Those two things. Unity and courage in the face of opposition. Now, step back and get the picture here in this paragraph. He starts off by saying, live a life that is worthy of the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean earn the gospel. You've got to get the order right here. First comes the gospel, then comes the living that is worthy of the gospel in your life. I hope that everybody in this room has met the gospel. That it has met you in power through the Holy Spirit, that it has entered your mind with understanding and your heart with faith. If that hasn't happened, prepare to meet the gospel right now, okay? I'll give you a two-minute summary of the gospel. That we are now as Christians to walk worthy of. The gospel is the good news that the Son of God did not hold on to His glorious divinity in a way that would keep Him from suffering, but let it go took on human flesh, lived a life of sinless obedience to the Father, fulfilling all of the law that we never did, died for the sins of His people, was raised again, blessed the doors of hell and death to pieces, and for everyone who will believe in Him, brings them out of the guilt of their sin, no matter what they've ever done, and into the hope of everlasting joy. If we will turn away from hoping in money and hoping in family and hoping in job and hoping in leisure and hoping in health and hoping in anything this world has to offer and start hoping in Jesus and His promises, a transaction in heaven happens that results in the deliverance from all of our sins, no more guilt, no more condemnation, and the hope of everlasting happiness with God in the kingdom and maybe even... Your pets will be there. Just to make it real, for those of you who don't get excited about, you know, golden streets and angels, and it's going to be good. It's going to be good. First comes the gospel. First comes the gospel. And then, when the gospel grips you and holds you, you live free. Now, what are the two freedoms? What are the two things in this text that show the worth of the gospel? Unity and fearlessness. Now, how does that work? You back up in the text of verse 21, and Paul gives a little testimony of what it means for him to walk worthy of the gospel. And he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. More Christ. <laughs> Closer to Christ. Therefore, gain. So to live is Christ, to die is gain. Now, you bring that down and relate it to unity and fearlessness. If you, if we all in this room said from the bottom of our heart, with the right look on our face so that it was real and not phony, if we said to each other, for me, Dan, to live is Christ. And you said back to me, to live is Christ. And we felt both of us saying that and meaning it, and would that draw us together? I mean, it wouldn't, we wouldn't hit each other like that. That was right. We would, we would come together and we would stick. We would come together. When I go to prayer meetings with uh, multi-denominational pastors and I pray, there's very little correlation, interestingly enough, 
between those I feel knit together with in prayer and, and denomination. Can't figure it out. What makes the difference is when it comes out of their mouth, for me to live is Christ. I whoa, I like that guy. I'm with that guy. I pray anything with that. I'll live with that guy. I'll die with that guy. That's what I hear. When you, when you testify that to live is Christ, then unity happens. That draws people together. If you take the other one, and to die is gain, what is that? That's the removal of the last enemy that our opponents have on us. Right? The last threat they can give us is, we'll kill you. You say, what? It's gain. Then your last fear is gone. And if the last enemy and the last fear are gone, now the next sentence is dangerous. You become a dangerous person. Ah, David Korsh. David Korsh. Right there he is. That's right. And it's Martin Luther, Peter, Jesus. The fact that a man is willing to die for what he believes in, doesn't make what he believes in true. And we must be discriminating people and not be controlled and gripped by the fear that, aha, if you're that kind of person, if you've overcome the fear of death, if you're living for a cause that will last beyond the grave, you're one of them. If that controls you, you will be useless in the, in the universe. You will calculate all of your behavior to make yourself as comfortable as you can, get as many uh, nice vacation days and as many pieces of toys and furniture and house and lands, and, and you'll just devote your whole life to making yourself comfortable because if you were to say anything controversial, then you get a label that is so politically explosive you never can get out of it. I mean, once you are tagged... You're just about done for, right? Well, if that's what you think, then you will go on out of here today and go home and turn on the TV and keep it on every night and not say anything controversial at work and not do anything that might ruffle anybody's feathers and you will be very safe and very useless in the world. And a lot of people want to be safe and useless in the world. It's comfortable. I don't know what they think on their deathbed. I have no idea what they think on their deathbed. How they will approach the king of the universe and give an account of their life which has been devoted to accumulating comforts. What will they say? I don't think they'll say anything. I think they'll weep their eyes out. Our call is to walk worthy of the gospel, which means lead a life that shows the worth of the gospel. We're called as Christians to lead a life that shows that our treasure is not in money. Our treasure is not in possessions. Our security is not in big financial packages. Our comforts and our encouragements and our happiness are not in avoiding slander, but rather Christ and His gospel are the treasure of our lives. On them we live. In them we move and have our being. And unity and fearlessness show the worth of the gospel. 
So in conclusion, the main reason for these messages is the main reason for every message. Namely, if by the grace of God over the next weeks as we focus on courage and God-centered risk-taking and boldness and fearlessness and venturesomeness in ministry, if God would create that, if he would make us one in our common striving for the gospel, and if he would take away fear from our hearts, then you know what would shine? The gospel would shine. Christ, the center of the gospel, would shine. And that's why every message is preached. That the gospel would be seen as worthy and that Jesus would be glorified. And so I invite you in these next weeks to pray with me that God would do it. Oh, Lord God, I pray that you would create fearlessness in our hearts. I pray that it would coexist with humility and love and that we would not be calculating in our fear of men's disapproval, but that we would speak the truth in love and let you cause the chips to fall where they will. Lord, protect us from the deceits of false Christs and false prophets. Guard my mouth that it may say nothing but what is rightly written in your word. And make your people discerning in all they read and all they hear. And out of that true discernment of the glorious gospel, make them unafraid to say truth and do love, no matter what it is called. In Jesus' name, amen.